Hi, this is Mr. Saad of MyPartnerIsKinky.com, and you're listening to The Masscast. The Masscast is free and supported by listeners like you. If you like what you hear, and we're sure you will, please become a supporter of The Masscast by going to the website and clicking Donate. Hi, and thanks for downloading another episode. Uh, you can now subscribe. I think I've said this in the past, but you can subscribe to the Massacast on SoundCloud. If you're a SoundCloud user, you can uh, jump on there and you'll be able to get a notification when there's a new episode. You can listen to old episodes. I'm slowly moving past episodes up to SoundCloud. Um, and this is possible thanks to the fine people who have donated in the past. Um, thank you. SoundCloud costs money and... You know, uh, it's thanks to you that I was able to do that. So spreading the word, getting out, getting out there for more people. Um, yeah. So thanks for that. Uh, this episode is really great. There's a guy who uh, emailed me. He said, look, uh, I've got a unique story and li- listen to the show. I would love to talk to you. And we had a great conversation. It was great talking to him. So take a listen. Enjoy. When you originally emailed me, you said uh, that this this would be an opportunity for me to get to that Downton Abbey demo. <laughs> well, you know, I owe you an apology right there because, uh, first of all, I knew perfectly well that you'd had several other English people on. And then, of course, <laughs> this week you broadcast Harper Elliott, who, if she couldn't hit the Downton Abbey, Abbey demographic right on the nose. I don't know who could. So, um, this is a very poor substitute. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure it's right. But the, there, but the, the one amazing thing to me is that uh, uh, is that I is how international this podcast actually is for something that's so usually so New York focused. Yeah, um, the fact that there are so many people from so many different parts of the world who listen and email is really really surprises me. Um, well, and, I think. The- Go ahead. There's a, Sorry. there's a lot of international reach to 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 the SM worlds, right? Right. Way. But I think it also speaks to the uh, the quality of the discussion. I think it, there aren't many places where people talk in detail from their own experience about their own lives uh, in a way that feels that feels grounded and precise. So um, I think the massacre stands out. Well, that's very very, very kind of you. You've already made it on the show. You don't have the brown nose anymore. <laughs> I, I'm delighted to make it through your rigorous. <laughs> my rigorous screening. My rigorous screening was, you want to be on? Okay, let's go yeah. on. It's like, it's like the Google interview strategy. <laughs> right, right. Seven stages. <laughs> we get to air. You're making it sound really. There's someone right now who's like, yeah, sure, I'll be a guest. And they're hearing you say that and like, oh, there's no way I could make it through that many stages of grueling interviews. Um but you you made it sound like before we started talking that you uh, have a very isolated kink life. That it, by isolated, I mean it's very modular or it's very it's in a very small container. Yeah, I think it's just it's it it's not by design. I think it's really um, circumstance, which is that I'm in my forties. I met someone twenty one years ago and fell madly in love with her and discovered my kink identity with her in the first few months of our relationship. And so I've only ever played with her. And I'm not a kind of exhibitionist. I don't really have any desire to take it out of the bedroom. At the same time, I'm not covert about it. Right. I'm I'm sat right now in in my bedroom, and we have a very large um, 
black and white poster of, from uh, a photographer called Claire Uberman, which is, uh, you know, clearly S&M in, in theme. And, uh, you know, there are, there are many clues for anyone who would care to pay the slightest bit of attention um, for, from people who know me and work with me, what my identity is. So it's not really, I wouldn't necessarily say isolated, it's just, um, it's, it's just fairly, um, it's fairly discreet and right. uh, don't really feel the need to, to take it further than that, I suppose. I think that's most people, though. Most people are, well, I should say, most people have that type of relationship with kink. It's just in the bedroom or whatever, you know. Um, however, there's something unique you said that, that at least, at least from, from what I've heard from others, and you said that you discovered your kink identity just months into your relationship with your wife. That's right, yeah. How did, how did that happen? Well, I think I had had um, sexual fantasies that were kinky going right back, as you know, so many of us do, but had never had the opportunity to really act on it and I think was probably slightly uh, nervous about it. I can remember very vividly when I was about 15 or 16, uh, a girl who I wasn't even going out with visited me in London and we walked down the King's Road and went to some of the fetish shops on the King's Road and she was looking to buy a rubber dress and I can just remember feeling really ill at ease, excited about it but really ill at ease and in the end I think she, we squabbled and she didn't buy it and you know it was one of those things where in retrospect I probably behaved like a shit right. uh, and, I, and I think by the time I, I, I met my partner who I'm with now I knew that that was an interest and I, I, I don't even know how the conversation really came up, but we went to visit skin Two, uh, the skin Two shop. Uh, this is in, you know, 1990, 1991, something like that in the days when it was on an industrial estate in West London and was fairly well unmarked and you had to go and ring a buzzer to go inside and so on. And, um, yeah, that we'd only been seeing each other for a few weeks and I, I must've suggested it to her and she said, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, so yeah, we clicked like that really quickly. But, but so you, so she suggested it and then you just, it kind of sort of just rolled along those lines ever since or, um, well, we bought some, we bought some rubber, um, gear and some, some cuffs, I think at that stage. Um, in fact, at that point, you know, I was only recently out of, from, of being a student and we were sleeping in the living room of the flat that a whole bunch of us were sharing. And I remember we had a whole bunch of our kind of um, fetish stuff just in a carrier bag stuffed underneath the sofa. So it was, it was um, definitely baby steps. Right. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, we, that it was something that we both found exciting and interesting. It was very episodic. I think in those in those days, you know, where it was something we did from time to time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I have the Polaroids to prove it. It's kind of strange, you know, now that digital photography is around, yeah, I have the kind of, I can, I can date scenes and things like that, looking through a stack of photos in a folder. But, but prior to that, you know, we had a Polaroid camera and I have some Polaroids where it's, it's quite clear that we were, that we were playing together 
in certain ways all through that time, but it's, it's hard to know exactly. <laughs> right. And, and, and in your experience, you, you, it sounds like you just explored and expanded together. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, um, there's always differences between us. Uh, and I would say it's probably fair to say that I was, um, driving it or, 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 um, certainly the keenest to push it. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I think it was always quite switchy. I think we, 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 we went with our sort of mood as to who would, who would be top and who would be bottom. Um, and uh, I'm sure that there were, I'm sure that there were um, kind of bumps along the road and, and, and periods where we didn't click or we didn't see eye to eye around it. But uh, there were also just loads of scenes where it was really exciting. We both were into it and, um, and yeah, we had a, we had a real connection on that. You know, we've always had an incredibly strong connection sexually um, anyway. And so um, that's, yeah, it got, it got really established into our sexual identity right from, from that, that earliest stages. So you said you, you, you were probably the, the biggest driver. So there's, there's something that, that I think a lot of people struggle with in, in, in that, um, they've met someone they really like and, um, they know, you know, let's say person A knows that person A is kinky person B, you know, they don't know if person B is very kinky or they know they're only slightly, but they like the person a lot so much so that they don't want to, it's, it's not a terrible deal breaker, but they do want to introduce it or they do want to encourage it. You just clearly did it in a way that didn't scare her off. Right. And she- made it so that she felt comfortable or, you know, enjoyed it and, and wanted to explore it with you. How did you, I think that's a really big question for people. How did, how to do that in a way that it's encouraging and not pushy and well, basically how, how to do it without being uh, a slime ball without being an asshole. Right. Um, yeah. Because I think people really, whether they're a switch or a top or a bottom, um, you know, uh, every side has, has its difficulties in, in how, how to approach it, but, and, you know, each one has its challenges, challenges, but how did you go about pushing it or should say encouraging it without, without scaring her off or, you know, violating any trust or, or anything like that? How did you go about doing it? I think, I think partly that's, um, some degree of luck in that my sexual identity around kink was not well established. I think I had come out of a long-term relationship with someone else, three and a half years in a relationship with someone else, uh, where that was not ever part of our sex lives at all. Um, and so I think that as, uh, as my current partner and I got together, this was something where it was, it was an exploration. And so that became something that we explored together. And so then there was an immediate bonding sense that we were, you know, I can remember vividly this trip to Skin Two, where we're both really scared about what we will find, right? And, and curious and excited. And I think um, she's um, uh, someone who's very open-minded. She's uh, an artist. She has um, a view of the world which is curious and and open. And so it was. It always felt easy. To, to talk to her about what 
I was interested in um, and to ask her what she was interested in and to play around with that um, with that stuff uh, in, in a very um, sort of non-pressured way. It wasn't like I have a, a sort of set of things that I'm desperately keen to try. I didn't have a particular set of, of kinks that were sort of, you know, that were the hot button things that I was trying to explore. I think it, I really felt that it was a, in a continuum with the rest of our relationship of can you find ways to, to try out new things uh, uh, you know, it's as much about um, sensations and, uh, and and new forms of experience. Um, you know, so so I, I sort of see see sort of kink in some ways in a spectrum with um, kinds of all kinds of other physical practices, sort of performance art practices. Uh, you know, there are lots of people out there who are doing things. You see it in lots of religious settings. I'm not religious at all, but. You know, there were all sorts of places where people play with some of the same kinds of experiences um, sure. that, that we do in the kink community. And I think, um, you, you know, so, so it, was always, it always felt like not a kind of compartmentalized thing, but something that was, that, that was open and available for discussion. So are you uh, involved in any communities or... or- or anything, I, I get the vibe you're not, like you said, it's sort of just it's self-contained or like, how did you like learn about new things and, and explore? Was that the internet when it, once the internet came around or? or? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's pre-internet just, uh, I got my first computer in 1994. So we've been playing around together for a few years before that. Um, I mean, being in London probably helped massively. Right. Uh, Skin Two magazine was publishing regularly, and that was, you know, I read that voraciously. There were, um, I, I, yeah, I read read any book that I could get that was in any way serious uh, around it, and there were some of those. Um, I can remember that on the very my very first trip to New York, buying a copy of Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns, right? Um, and, and so, you know, it, the, that was a period where art bookshops and, and esoteric bookshops were always something I looked, looked in um, meticulously for any kind of information. And then um, I guess there was just loads of um, experimentation on our own terms. I think, you know, I think there was just less awareness of it. I certainly don't remember seeing any porn outside of Skin 2 all through that period. Um, there's an amazing film. I don't know if you've seen it called Mano Destra. Have you come across that? No, I don't think I have. It's almost unknown now. I, I looked for it recently and I, I can't see it available on DVD at all. Uh, I have a VHS copy, <laughs> which, which I paid a lot of money for. Uh, but it was a film made in the 80s by a, a Swiss woman called Cleo Ubelman. And it's in fact her poster that I have on my wall in front of me. And um, it's a... Uh, a kind of an experimental uh, SNM movie. It has no dialogue, has no nudity. It's, it's all uh, women, and it's predominantly one woman in the role of a top and one woman in the role of a bottom, and a series of long takes of, of almost no movement. You know, someone bound and not really moving, 
with a with a kind of quite a scary soundtrack. Actually, the soundtrack hasn't aged very well. <laughs> but that was shown quite regularly at um, at Cinema called the Scala, which was a kind of a fantastic art house meets uh, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, sort of um, exploitation movie cinema in in King's Cross in London. And so I can remember going to see Mano Destra and that absolutely kind of blowing me away. So yeah, the, you know, it was, it was beg, steal or borrow in terms of information. And I think, you know, we were probably, we were probably just a bit more enclosed in some ways. It sounds like though, um, London is similar to New York in that you can be into just about whatever you want and get away with it. But at the same time, it also sounds like, especially at the time, um, like when you were first starting out together, it sounded like, and I guess I could just say pre-internet, um, it sounded like you could, you know, explore what you wanted to without getting caught or without, you know, too much worry. But it almost sounds like London, London sounds a little more safer, let's just put it that way, than New York did at the same time. Uh, I get, you know, just for exploration or not having to worry too much that you're going to be in you might be in a CD place, but not too CD. Is that right? Or yeah, I mean, I, I, I obviously I can't compare London and New York at that time, but right. I, I mean, I'm sure those sleazy dives existed in London. I'm sure in Soho there were places where you could go and get you know bondage videos under the counter and all that. You know, uh, uh, that's certainly what I was told. You know, <laughs> through the nineties was that there was you know. You had to go and you had to ask, and then you would, you, you know, you would, you, you'd see stuff. There were some, um, yeah, there were some sh- shops in Soho that, that sold um, bondage magazines and so on. Um, but I certainly, ne- I never felt it was a threat. I never felt um, it was uh, an uncomfortable environment. But I, you know, I did. I wasn't going to S and M clubs. You know, that was never something that we wanted to do. Um, so. Um, yeah, it was really, you know, it was really uh, at home was, was where all of my sexual identity has been, you know, I've not so much as worn a pair of leather trousers outside the house. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's just the way I'm wired, I guess. Now you've been together for how long did you say? 23 years. Yeah. 23 years. And over over that court, it's 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 natural for um, people to sometimes want to either push, you know, a little further. You know, the, the envelope is always getting pushed one way or another. Oh, let's try adding this or this. Um, has that happened? And have you found that to be true in yours, or has it been like, hey, we've got this. We've you know, you hit this equilibrium, and you're coasting, and everything is perfect just like that. No, it's never been coasting. It's always about testing and exploring and and being curious and trying new things and that's i think that's one of the reasons that our relationship is 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 endured and feels really strong is because we share that conviction really clearly in all aspects of our life and um, our sex life is no different we've got kids uh you know i have a daughter who's 16 and and a son who's 11 and so um we have been through 15 years of having young kids and um, we're we're coming out of that that time now, where we have more time to ourselves, and and um, uh, that's that's made a big difference. 
And um, I also think it's one of the great things about getting older. You know, it's um, I'm 46, and I think I, I'm just um, coming into that period of my life where it's it's uh, it's a carpe diem sort of period. You know, you must um, do what you want to do. You can feel more relaxed about whether what anyone else thinks. I'm certainly much less concerned about um, about other people's judgment. You know, I think I spent so much of my 20s worrying about what people would think or what, you know, not just about my sexual identity, but in all aspects of my life, uh, you know, whether people liked me or whether people thought I was this or that or the other. And I just think that that feels um, that's less, less of an issue. So, um, so yeah, our sexual identities between us is, is, has shifted um, over and over, but in the last three or four years has really gone into a new, a new level, I would say. And that's partly through um, introducing chastity into our sex lives. Um, it's partly through taking more clear-cut roles. So uh, at the moment, I'm generally submissive. Um, and that submission is now spreading out of um, just our sexual activity into more aspects of our life. And so we're... We're kind of negotiating that and exploring that together. So, um, how is that? How has that manifested itself? Um, so, we now have more forms of protocol that are baked into everyday life. So, for example, I do not get into the bed without her permission at any stage, and I will always kneel with my head on the floor by the bed before um, she gives me permission to go into the bed. And, you know, we have various other little sort of rituals and codes like that. That means that even when neither of us are feeling particularly sexual, that is there and present every day. I wear a chastity device and that is um, uh, pretty much 24-7 and has been for a few years. And so, again, that's a kind of constant um, presence so, um, uh, then the way in which I am submissive and to what extent is something that is, is just, um, still very fluid, I would say mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not, I, I don't think we ever ha- kind of have anything that kind of fits into a certain set of rules. It's more about adding something or trying something or moving towards something or away from something, um, Earlier this, earlier this year, um, we switched roles for a few weeks, and um, that was that was really exciting and very different. Um, but I think my partner's more comfortable switching back the other way, and that's fine with me. So, so we're now we're now back in back with me, and I'm submissive in the in the, in the sort of default position. So you have you you said a lot of stuff there that I would like, if you don't mind, to drill down. A little bit into sure. um, uh, first of all protocols um, protocols are something that you know different I think different people um, connect with at different times in their lives or in different times of their kink exploration um, for you first of all were protocols both of your ideas or did did she come up with them or did you both sort of uh, sort of 
decide, oh, this would be this would be really hot because protocols can be hot for sometimes protocols are hot for just one of the people, you know, yeah. and and not to say that the other person doesn't enjoy it, but it's definitely something that the other person really enjoys, whether it's the top or the bottom, you know, it doesn't really it seems protocols I find. You can talk to some people, and let me, uh, since most of my friends are dominant women, some of them just like protocols are like, oh man, it just, why? And then some of them are like, oh, that would be so hot, you know, <laughs> depending on the thing. How did protocols, how did that come up in conversation? How did that, how did you, how did that even come to be in that, in that case? I think I suggested it. And I think that, um, uh, in our sex lives, there are periods where either our, our libidos will be low or my partner's libido will be low or um, we're not clicking. And so then, uh, you know, for, for much of our relationship, the S&M would be completely out of the, out of the picture. The toy box is, is unused and um, that, would be, that would be fine. But I think what I was looking for was a was a way in which we could explore how the the the, the moments of euphoria and epiphany, even that we've experienced together in our sex lives, could could be connected through our relationship and and also outwards into other ways about how we behave together. And I think this is. Um, I'm perhaps sort of jumping to a tangent slightly, but I, I'm quite a strong and dominant personality in most aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, uh, and so for me to be submissive seems to balance our relationship really beautifully because it gives space and, uh, and, and, and a kind of thread to our relationship where I bite my tongue I shut up. I do as I'm told, and um, and 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 similarly, you know, in mirror fashion, giving her space to um, be be looked after, to be able to be pampered, to have things exactly the way she wants it, to control the pace and rhythm of things, and so um, that just feels like a like a really good fit. And I think the protocols, um, eventually, looking back to the question you asked, are, are, are kind of um, are, are just little forms of encoding of, of, of those rhythms between us. Um, then they're, they're not they're not huge. They're not very elaborate, um, but they're they're a way of of, of of building a kind of rhythm through through our day and through our lives that, that at the moment feels um, feels very kind of harmonious and smooth. And there will be an evening where I'll meet by, kneel by the bed. She'll say, "Get into bed," and that's the last of it. Yeah. Uh, but we, we both we both have that acknowledgement that that this state of affairs still exists through that tiny ritual. And and how about the the, the chastity? How did that come about? I think it was just curiosity originally. I think um, I, the first chastity device I had was a kind of silicon um, device. And I, I think it was just uh, 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 an experimentation, something where I saw them 
showed it to her. I said, I'd like to, to get one of those and see what that would be like. What do you think? And she was like, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll try it. And not one of us felt that there was any um, big sort of Rubicon being crossed in, in, in buying this thing and me putting it on. And at, at least initially, you know, I only wore it intermittently. It takes time to get used to wearing a device. Um, but, but really quickly, I think we found that me not having any sexual release uh, immediately heightened my focus on her. It, it made me more attentive uh, and uh, it, it enabled um, times where she perhaps didn't want sex to still be sexual for me and sexual for her in a, in a way that was not, not involving sex, but there's, there's sex still, still in the equation. Um, and so, you know, within a few months, that became quite a constant thing. And then uh, I guess within nine months or six months, I ordered a metal device, and, um, which is so much better. Um, and I now, yeah, I now wear that um, constantly. What's the, uh, what was the improvement on the metal device from the silicone device? Um, the comfort level or? It's, it's more, it's more comfortable. It's aesthetically nicer. It's much easier to keep clean. It's much easier. And so therefore it's easier to wear continuously. Right. Um, uh, yeah, those are the, those are the main, the, the main things. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it looks much nicer and it's, you, you, you you know, you get some kind of um, sores or points that rub you sometimes in a, in a silicon device, and uh, that's that's not nearly so much of a problem with a metal device. And how was the? Um, I mean, there's a lot of just your day to day that needs to change when you're wearing a device too, right? I mean, how you go to the bathroom, and or am I am I completely wrong in that? Or oh no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah, I sit down to sit down to go for a pee and, uh, you know, I'm living in a household with two kids. So, you know, I have to be very careful and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, for me, that's part of the, the turn on is that, um, that I'm always aware of it. Um, that there's always some sort of logistics to deal with. I travel a lot. And, um, so flying, taking it off, putting it back on again, um, sending a photo to show that I've now got it back on. All of those things are, are a constant. I had a very unfortunate episode at a Romanian airport last year where I had a flight at f- five in the morning and for whatever insane reason went into passport control wearing my device, into the into the security section wearing my device. Oh, no. Um, and got scanned and pulled aside and then at that moment, I realized, oh, my God. So how, I'm sorry about laughing here, but. I don't know. So, it really, it's really warrants every, every laugh that it gets because I'm, you know, I'm thinking he's about to take me into a small room and, you know, invite me to show him why it beeps every time he, he passes the wand over my crotch. And um, he, he, you know, obviously he's Romanian. He, his English wasn't great. And. I'm sure I'm blushing bright red. Right. Um, but, uh, but he just, after a while, he, he looked at me, I looked at him. I think he knew either, you know, I'm, I'm, he, I'm sure he probably didn't think it was a chastity device, but I think he thought I had a piercing, you know, a dick piercing or something. Right. And, um, he just waved me through. Um, so he just looked at your facial expression. 
<laughs> and realized, okay, there's two different types of embarrassed look. Embarrassed, I'm a terrorist and I've been caught. Or embarrassed, I'm not a terrorist and this is incredibly embarrassing for totally different reasons. And he probably knows it's probably that other reason. I just don't want – he probably does like, listen, I've got a long day ahead of me. It's only 5 in the morning. I do not want to start my morning having a guy drop his pants in front of me like this. Um, so, so lucky I was able to pull off the right facial expression there. <laughs> yeah. I slipped into embarrassed terrorist face. <laughs> right. Well, I, and it's probably because you just got so used to, right? You're just so used to wearing it, right? Exactly. It really was. It was, you know, I scraped myself out of bed and got straight into a cab and all the rest of it. And yeah, really, it's something that becomes um, becomes very um, very familiar in, in some ways. But, you know, ironically, that was always one of my worst fears was that sense of that I would accidentally get into that situation. And having come through that one, I, you know, it, it's one of those things where you just think it's not that big a deal. Even if he'd taken me into a room and got me to drop my pants, it's like it would have been embarrassing you know, but it's still not that big a deal. People, people see worse things every day. In, of course, yeah. In in, in emergency rooms, so uh, yeah. So. so have you? I know there's a huge uh, chastity community online where they discuss. Uh, I mean, they, they discuss a lot of details. Yeah. Um, oh, I've been wearing it for X amount of time, and how do you deal? Have you explored the online community aspect of it at all, or again, has it been sort of like a? You're just focusing on your own experience and, and that's it. No, no, absolutely. I've, I've been, um, read those fastidiously, um, for years, partly because, um, there are loads of practicalities and there are loads of strategies and techniques to, to doing it, to buying the right device, even to measuring yourself for a device. I mean, it took weeks <laughs> the process of trying to measure myself and, and get the measurements that you feel are definitely right before you make quite a large investment. Right. In, 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 you know, in my case, it comes from a company called Jailbird, and they, they're sending from Texas. So every time I have to send it back for an adjustment or, you know, something like that, it's a, it's a four or six week process and so on. So, um, yeah, and there are some great people online, you know, as with so much of the SM community, one of the things that's so exciting is that there are so many articulate, intelligent, curious, and inquiring people out there. Um, that there's, there's loads of great sources of information and, um, yeah, you get a great insight into other people's relationships and, and lifestyles. So just to back up, so you when you need like, you, you're like, oh, you know what, it's rubbing a little bit on the right too much or something like that. You send it back, they stretch it out or do whatever they do, and send, that's, how, that's um, how it works? Or I've only done that once, and that's, that was to buy a, a, a different ring that was slightly smaller and to fit the cage slightly closer to my body. So it's like, it's actually an adjustment of a few millimeters in both of those measurements. Um, but uh, after about three years of wearing um, the device, uh, I, I, I definitely felt that it would be better if it was slightly, slightly closed up in that way. And so, um, yeah, a few, few months ago, we took the plunge and, and, and sent it off to have that done. So in general, no, it, you can, you can, you can, you just have to take it off for a, for a few days or even right. longer sometimes if it, if it, if it's, um, if it rubs badly or something, but, um, but that, that happens less and less, you know, it's one of those things you just completely, completely adjust to. So what does she say, uh, you know, what, what's her uh, enjoyment of this? What does she, I mean, I, I've heard both sides, but I'm just curious uh, from her perspective, what she, what she likes about it. 
I would say um, uh, that the sexual excitement of me not being able to orgasm for a few weeks at a time, it's usually maybe a month or, or five weeks between orgasms, um, that's, that's really exciting for both of us. And um, it means that there's a kind of, there's a kind of um, shape to that process uh, of, of building up and up and up towards uh, my, my sexual excitement getting higher and higher. Um, I think uh, the, the, the biggest thing I think she would say is that it, it brings my focus onto her and to her needs in a very particular way. And in fact, you know, I talked about the protocol of kneeling by the bed. Sometimes I'll be waiting by the bed for five or ten minutes. Um, but however long it is, it's always a moment for me just to think back over the day and to think about how I've treated her, to think whether she's going to be pleased with me or not pleased with me as she comes through the bedroom door. And um, that, that, that process of, of, of um, making her the absolute center of, of, of my life and, um, and, and putting her needs um, as paramount, I think that's the thing that she, she likes best. One of the other protocols we have is the first thing I say in the morning is how may I serve you, mistress? And the first thing I say when she comes into the bedroom is how may I serve you, mistress, at night? So we book in both ends of the day with that. And again, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, an opportunity to, to, um, for her to ask for a cup of tea or a cup of hot water or, you know, or a massage or whatever it might be. But it's, it's a moment where, um, you know, she will, she may well ask me to do something that is entirely non-sexual and is purely because that's what she would, she would most like. And um, sure. that's as it should be. Seriously. So how, how um, has it ever extended? Like if, for example, have you had an argument about something uh, during the day and then you're kneeling at the end of the night and you're wondering, she is not going to let me get in bed at all tonight. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We work together. And uh, uh, so uh, we spend, you know, almost all of our time together. We live and work together. We, we spend a huge amount of time together. We fight uh, sometimes in a, 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 a very combustible way. And um, we had a very um, compartmentalized perspective on that, which is we did not allow those things to really spill over. But I, I have encouraged her to, to do that. And um, in fact, we spoke about it in bed this morning because um, we're aware that that's growing more and more. And that um, on Friday, I said something to her that um, she wasn't very happy with. And she said, I'm going to whip you later. And I just laughed, which was ill-advised. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, you know, when, when, when we came to bed that night, she cropped me 50 times really hard and, um, uh, you know, we're still sort of navigating that, you know, because there are times and I, and I don't know, I'd be curious to know how you and Saad deal with this because obviously you're a strong and independent person as well and also submissive. And it's like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Because there are moments for us where she will um, take umbrage at something I've just said 
And I absolutely 100% disagree with the reason why she's upset. And um, uh, now I'm, I'm less likely to argue back about it than I, than I would have been. And sometimes that sort of short circuits around a potential point of tension and it diverts it into a sexual place that resolves it all and we just move on. And then there are other times where it does, doesn't quite work like that. It's not as smooth. How, how do you guys do it? Well, for us, it is – so it is – she has a, a rule that she will not – she will not, like, you know, do anything beating-related or anything like that out of, out of anger or frustration or anything like that. Um, yeah. that's just her personal thing. Right. Um, also, you know, there have been times when I've needed to be corrected for something and, uh, I do not handle that well, but by that, I mean, I am, uh, uh, I, I, while she could be, you know, she could be hitting me with a, an, a wrench, you know, and, I'm not saying she would, but I'm saying if she were hitting me for a wrench because I had upset her, I would be more emotionally bruised from the fact that it was because I upset her than physically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, so she knows that that is a, and that's, you know, that's, that's one of my hangups is that I, it's really hard for me to separate the two of, of a correction physically with a correction playfully uh so you've got kids how do you how do you you know move all this stuff around you know while having kids um like like for example she she gave you know she, you said she hit you 50 times with a crop the other night yeah are you in do you have like a bedroom on the exact opposite side of the house or how does that how do you do yeah. that? Yes, we do. Oh, okay. Uh, and, um, yeah, so we were lucky enough to, we took on a, um, a almost derelict warehouse 10 years ago and converted it. And so we were able to work out the layout of the entire place. And so, yeah, there is, it's, um, uh, it's at least 50 feet between our bedroom and either of our kids. Oh, and that was very intentional. Right. And, um, our place is also well soundproofed. We also have a, a small hidden room behind our bedroom that we had installed when the conversion took place, um, which is, you know, not much larger than a dressing room, but it's large enough to have a spanking bench in it and oh, uh, nice. a wardrobe with all of our, with all of our toys. Um, and, you know, the physical sort of, so the physical side of concealing it is, is not a problem. Um, the issue will be when it becomes appropriate to tell, um, certainly our, our daughter, who's, who's the eldest, um, about our identity, because that's not something I would want to hide from her in the long term. On the other hand, it's certainly not something I want to throw in her lap, um, at, 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 before she's ready. Um, I, I, my guess is that she already has um, a fairly good idea. Um, she's she's mature and uh, and perceptive, so um, I, I don't think it will come as a shock to her. But but there will be a moment where I will want to to be open and honest with her. And certainly, if she asked me today, I would tell her no question. So how how 
is it because you, you, you're going to tell her because you want her to know, basically you want to want her to know that it's okay to be whatever you want to be, or, um, you want her to feel comfortable to be talking, to talk to you about anything or how, I mean, I know that if I help today, I was going to say if I was 16, but even today, if my parents were to tell me anything about their sex life, I'd be like, you know what, go with it. You just go ahead and keep it to yourself. That's fine by me. I don't need, I do not need to know anything, but in this day and age, of course, it's a completely different story having a kid that has access to every bit of information possible. Yeah. Is I mean, what is the? I want to say I'm not judging you for telling her. You know, I'm yeah. saying, uh, what is the? You know, what is the desire on your end for wanting to tell her? Well, I have a general presumption of honesty in all things towards my kids. Um, uh, not that that would necessarily uh, make it justifiable to go in and tell them this, mm-hmm. uh, but but um, that is my sort of default position, uh, and um, it would certainly not be about any of the details. I, like I would not, for example, tell them about chastity, right. but make it clear that um, that our sexual identities involve some level of power exchange or something, you know, something at a fairly broad level. And then it would be up to them as to whether they wanted to know anything more than that. But I think it's, I think it's to do with the fact that, um, we, you know, we live in a very sex negative culture and we live in an environment where authentic voices about sexuality are really hard to find, especially if you're a 16 year old who's just bumbling around on the internet most of what you're going to bump into is the worst aspects of, of, of sexual culture. Um, either kind of terrible sort of titillation, Miley Cyrus kind of wing or the nasty porn, uh, kind of, uh, you know, super aggressive, um, uh, misogynistic kind of porn. Right. Uh, so in some ways, you know, I think as a parent now, you have to talk to your kids around that. I've already had conversations with her about porn on the internet because, you know, the second she's got a laptop, which is three, four years ago now, that's a just a, a fact of life. There's no way she's going to avoid it. So even at the age of 12, 13, we're having tough conversations with her about that sort of stuff. Um, so it, in, in that sense, it feels like there's a, there's a continuum. And um, I also think these things are very revealing about your own identity in terms of your parents in some ways. I'm not suggesting that your sexual identity is sort of inherited, but, but you know, the, the, the particular kind of emotional strengths and weaknesses and, and, uh, and you know, dare I say it, kinks that people have, you know, that your parents have are transmitted to you or impact on you in various ways. So, um, you know, maybe that's something, maybe that's a conversation that will happen in 10 or 20 years time. But right. um, I think it would be a shame never to, never to have it. And I, I think also it's partly to do with the fact that I would think she is, she suspects some of that in any case. And so then if it's never spoken about, there's a sense in which something has been hidden from her. I mean, I'm using my daughter as the example here because my son's so much younger but you know that sense that something was hidden and never revealed. I, I think that that's you know it's, it's something into which you can you can pour a whole set of sort of misconceptions, those sort of gaps. Um, so I would want that you know that to um, 
for her to have enough information to to know um, that 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 what, what that might be, and that if she if she was sort of wondering about um, things that she's seen in the bedroom or things that she's overheard, because who knows, you know, I'm, I'm merely saying that it's all very discreet and so on, but you just have no idea, right? Uh, uh, so um, you know, I think uh, to try and fill fill that gap would also be part of my motivations. Yeah, that's a really, it's a really difficult um, spot to be in. I, th- I mean, I have to, I don't have kids, so I have no no idea. I know there's one thing that that crossed my mind is that you had. So I've got several friends who are in your position. They're in their uh, 40s, and their kids are getting to the age where they're going to be either going out to school, university, or whatever, or or whatever. They might be leaving the house, right? Um, and so now they're, they've got this whole new new part because in the last 18 years or whatever, they've been dedicating it to their children and not, obviously not 100%, but a good chunk of their time is taken up by the kids, right? And so now they have this whole new thing where they can do whatever the hell they want to some extent, right? This newfound freedom. Whereas, um, whereas I, you know, I'm, you know, I've got friends who their kids are out of the house and they're my age, right? Um, because they started right, you know, when they were 18 or whatever, you know, <laughs> when they had kids. Whereas, you know, I, I just turned 40 and we might have a kid, you know, who knows? We don't know. We might, we might not, you never know. Um, and one of my big worries about, about if we were to have a kid is I don't want to lose. Listen, we had to give stuff up kink wise when we got a dog and I didn't, <laughs> I was, and I was not happy about that. Right. You know, we could not just have sex on the couch for no reason yeah. whatsoever, you know, without getting rid of the dog first or, you know, cause who wants a cold nose, you know, on their leg, you know, when, when you're going to town. So especially not on your leg, right. Or anywhere out. I mean, that's the best case scenario is the leg. Exactly. Right? So, uh, so having a kid, I mean, that's another whole, but then again, people do this all the time, right? I've got, we got plenty of friends who they're like, you know, they went from going to sex parties to, you know, you know, baby showers or whatever. And, uh, and it used to be, I'm like, why would I ever give up that? But now I know, I know that there's a natural evolution to relationships and that, you know, these types of things and, you know, can strengthen it. Um, for you, when, you know, when the kids are out of the house, are you, have you been talking about all the crazy stuff you're going to do afterwards or? Yeah, well, I think, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not like, um, you know, you, you you can't predict how things will turn out, and um, uh, but yeah, there's a, definitely a countdown going on in my mind. But that countdown maybe six or eight years. You know, my youngest is eleven, and right. he may he may be in the house till he's twenty five. You know, so so it's 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 not like there's a kind of be a kind of sudden snap point where everything's gonna gonna change, but. Even maybe three or four years ago, the change suddenly happened where he would wake up and go and find the TV and his iPod on a Saturday morning well and come in and throw himself onto our bed. And already that makes a difference to how you think about what you what state the bedroom has to be in and right. all of the stuff. You know, and um, yeah, my I mean from my experience, I would say that going ahead and having a kid is absolutely the right thing to do even if you're completely committed to, to your sexual identity, because 
you will find ways for your sexual identity to come through. You will have new challenges, um, but the two are not incompatible. And, and, you know, I think it's unlikely that you, you would sit here in 20 years' time going, oh, thank God, like, I got all those extra sessions in, you know, <laughs> because I didn't have a kid or, you know, whatever. I mean, clearly, you know, I'm not. <laughs> well, I think the answer is I just have to find a derelict warehouse. Yeah, exactly. That's the key, right? That's the, that's the key. Yeah. Um, well, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I've been really enjoyed uh, getting to know you and hearing about your situation. You sound like you've. You, what I've really enjoyed learning about is uh, I think you have what is contrary. If you, if you were to listen to this podcast, you'd think everyone is just, everyone who's into kink just goes out to a crap ton of parties right and and that the whereas i think you have a more realistic view and realistic uh i should say your more stereotypical experience maybe of what most people and how most people experience kink yeah. um and i think i think that's one of the reasons i got in touch with you because i was thinking there must be many, many, many listeners to your podcast who are much more in my situation because the sheer nature of geographical distribution means that, uh, you know, 99.9% of Kingsters are not in New York or London. And, uh, you know, that, that, um, that, that we're, um, uh, you know, that, 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 that kind of bedroom lifestyle is, 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 is how most of us live our sexual identities. Um, so, you know, I was, I, I wanted to, to, to share that. Well, I think also because there are a, a lot of blogs out there that deal where, where people, you know, talk about their relationship experience uh, in kink, not just in kink, but in, you know, sexuality in general. And those have been, are, are always fascinating too, but it's, it's a completely different thing hearing someone talk about it rather than just reading it. And, um, and yeah, and I, I think I, I know there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who do feel sort of a, not inferior is not the right word, um, but feel like like they're having less of a kink experience because they're not in New York or, you know what I mean? Or because they're not in some yeah. place where they can go to, you know, a, a, a kink party and, you know, see Shabari, you know, you know, whatever. That they that they're having some sort of some sort of less of a of an experience as a kinky person because of that. And well, I, I just don't think that's the case. Um, um, where it's, it's you know a lot of what you read and see are the glamorized aspects of of kink. Uh, the reality of it is so much. I think so much more sincere. I think I don't know. That's just that's just me, man. Um, yeah. I think it's equivalent to that sort of thing of um, you know whether whether it's okay to go out drinking in your in your in your local bar as opposed to being in the you know in Soho in Manhattan at the hippest you know new bar that just opened. Right, right. It's, it's a, you know it may it may be quite exciting to to go that to, to go to that place, but it may not. And um, you know it's uh, there there are just many different ways to 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 do it, and right. I think. You know, one of the things that's incredible about S&M is this uh, ability to commune with another person in such a particular way. You know, one of the things I love about it so much is that um, compared to vanilla sex, there are so many different levels and ways in which you can engage with someone else and have these, 
um, you know, almost transcendent experiences uh, that you know, you know don't rely on almost any equipment or any location or anyone else. It's you know, you and someone else can 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 do that thing. And that's, that's exactly a, exactly. I mean, we. It, you're, you know, the, I think your analogy of the the hip club in Soho is perfect because um, the realities are. Sure, you can get into that club. The bouncer will let you in. You're in there. But you know what? It's going to be too loud to have a conversation. You're going to spend $20 on a watered-down drink. And you're only going to stay for two drinks, and you're going to leave going like, I don't see what the big deal was anyway. And, you know, and that'll be it, right? Um, and I think I think that's part of the reason why, why Saad and I have not really gone to too many kink events for, for a while. It's just because... We've been there. We've been there. And we actually, we went, we had a great time this past year. We went to an event and we saw a lot of people we haven't seen in a while. It was really great to see those people. But, you know, um, at the same time, we're, you know, we enjoy our, our bedroom just as much too. So, um, well, thanks again for doing this. Is there, are you on any uh, social media where, where people listeners can connect with you if they want, or are you just Sure. Yeah, I'm on FetLife, where I have naught friends what, as, you, of, as of this moment. You should add the Massacast. There you go. That'll be my first one. There we go. And then I'll friend you back, and then people can find your username in the Massacast friend list. But what's well, your username there? It's it's um, it's Chat Roissy, which is a, a for any fans of Story of I is a contraction of Chateau de Roissy. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's um don't ask me why I chose that. It was a right. it was one of those spontaneous things that only later on do you think I should have thought about that. You're more. talking to someone who used this unspeakable axe as unfortunately. <laughs> well there you go. We, um we can but, bond up that. Right. But well we'll have your username on the uh they can go to the Massacast episode, they'll be able to find your username there too if they want to add you. And um and yeah, make sure you add Massacast as a friend, so I'll add you back. So that way you can you can have a friend on FetLife, damn it. There we go. This was a lot been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks. No, it's great to talk to you. You know, it's because of people like him that uh, this podcast exists. And uh, and it's like people like you as well. By the way, you can find links to his FetLife account and everything else on Massacast.com. While you're there, you can subscribe. You can also leave a review, by the way, in iTunes. I think the last person who left a review was, I think it was Moses. That's how long ago it was. Um, But yeah, thanks for downloading and uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.